thankful for Brother Roger coming out and being with us tonight. He is, of course, a preacher over at the Greens Lake Road Congregation, the uh, director of the Chattanooga School of Preaching, and just in general, and in my estimation, uh, one of the finest men that uh, you can ever care to know and has uh, one of the finest wives you can ever care to know. And I think that is probably why he is the previous. We're thankful that they're out here uh, with us, uh, long-time missionaries to the Far East and Ukraine. And if you ever, if you never thought you could get a husband and a wife and a whole parcel of kids on a moped, you need to uh, look at some pictures that Donna has because you can do it. You can do it. Um, but Brother Roger comes to us tonight, and he's going to uh, preach to us about Jesus, the superior sanctuary. Come speak to us, brother. Fascinating. And tonight we're going to be examining uh, chapter 9. Okay, as we think about the superior sanctuary. Before you ever get to chapter 9, you've been introduced to a number of concepts that make it clear this is a message that originally was written to Christians from a Jewish background. People who were raised and lived in a Jewish culture. People who were well familiar with the Old Testament arrangement. And so throughout this letter, you'll see contrast. This is the way it was under the old law. This is the way it is under the new. This is the way it was under the former covenant. This is the way it is under the new. And you know, when God labels something as evil or bad, it's bad. And when God labels something as good, it's good. 
And when God takes it up another notch and says, here's something that's better, then you know God knows what He's talking about. And the word better is used a number of times in the book of Hebrews as you think about some arrangement under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. You read in the chapter prior to this, in chapter 8 and verse 6, that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on what? Better promises. It's not bad-mouthing the old arrangement. We read in Romans 7 and verse 12 that, that the old law, the old commandment was holy and just and good. But in God's arrangement of things, God says the new one is better. What do we read about Jesus in, in, in this book? Well, among other things, we read right out of the gates that He's the Son, S-O-N. God spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, in various times and various ways, as in these last days, spoken unto us by His Son, Jesus. And then you come to the last chapter of the book, and Jesus is described as the shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. And so you see Him pictured here as the Son of God, You see him pictured as the shepherd of the sheep. You see him throughout this book pictured as the sacrifice through whom redemption comes. And you see him pictured as the shepherd, or rather the Savior, who provides eternal salvation. There's one concept, one description of Jesus that's found only in the book of Hebrews. You know what it is? High priest. Now, the Old Testament book of Zechariah, about 500 years before the Messiah came into the world, said the branch, that is the Messiah, he's going to rule on his throne, and he's going to sit as priest on his throne. But it's in the book of Hebrews that over and over, in fact, starting in chapter 2 and running through chapter 10, in every single chapter, in nine consecutive chapters of our Bible, Jesus is described as high priest. Well, that's different. That's different from the old arrangement because under the old arrangement, to be a priest, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi, was he? He's from the tribe of Judah. In chapter 7, the message is, we've got a new priesthood. Well, the conclusion in verse 12 of chapter 7 basically is, if you've got a new priesthood, there is of necessity a changing of the what? Changing of the law. Again, it's not putting down the old system. It's just saying the new system is better. Now, here's the way we're going to kind of walk through this tonight. And If you're a note taker, don't rush to write those down. Because we're going to break those down and look at those one at a time. Chapter 9 does not contain a lot of information that you would say deals with how should I treat my neighbor? Or how, what kind of spirit should I have when I approach God in prayer? But I believe if we can get a grasp on the message of chapter 9, we'll leave here tonight with a better appreciation of what Jesus did for us. And we'll leave here tonight with a renewed commitment to live for Him. And we'll leave here tonight with a renewed devotion to live what we just sang. That I'll surrender all for Him Because He surrendered all for me. Before we talk about the superior sanctuary, the writer makes this point. There was under the old arrangement 
a worldly, or in verse number 1 in the New King James, it says an earthly sanctuary. If you read, I'm going to have time to read. Well, let me take this back. i got all the time in the world, but I'm not going to take all the time to read it tonight, okay? But look at verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly or earthly sanctuary. So you see in verse 1 you've got that idea of the first. And my Bible has in italics the word covenant. And throughout the book of Hebrews you're going to see that language, the first and the second. The first covenant and the second covenant. The God of heaven has made a number of covenants with humanity or with different humans. Made a covenant with Noah and his family. Made a covenant with Abraham. Made a covenant with David. But there are two covenants that are of such magnitude that the Bible identifies one as the first. That's the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And the other is identified as the second. That is the new covenant of the Lord Jesus. Well, before you get to the wording of chapter 9 and verse 1, you have chapter 8. And it's in chapter 8 that we're informed that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant established upon better promises. And then beginning in, I believe it's verse 8 of chapter 8, the writer goes back and quotes from that prophecy in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, where God said that He was going to make a new covenant. New covenant. with The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now if you were to ask me tonight, How long before the coming of the Messiah into this world did the Jews understand there was going to be a new covenant? I'm not sure if I know the answer to that. They understood the Messiah's coming, there's going to be a new arrangement. But Jeremiah wrote about 600 years B.C. And so at least by that time, they knew God said, I'm going to make a new covenant. So in chapter 9 and verse 1, reference is made to the first covenant. And so if you wanted to read verses 1 through 5, you would find here are some references to the old arrangement, okay? Verse 1, there was a tabernacle made. Wait a minute. Let's stop. Why did the children of Israel build a tabernacle? Well, because God told them to. God thought it would be helpful to their lives for them to have a tabernacle. And so He gave the pattern of that tabernacle to Moses when Moses up on Mount Sinai, and he said, see that you make the tabernacle according to the pattern. And to their credit, that's what the children of Israel did. A number of times in the last chapter of Exodus, as it talks about some of the details of the tabernacle, it will say, so they did according as the Lord commanded, as the Lord commanded. Good for them. And so as you think about the construction of that tabernacle, Only certain individuals were allowed to go into that with God's approval. You might recall a king of Judah by the name of Uzzah. He determined he was going to march himself right in there and offer incense, and he became a leper until the time of his death. Only certain individuals, and we'll talk about them in just a moment, only certain individuals were allowed to go into the tabernacle. Well, there were two main compartments of the tabernacle proper. There was the first section. It faced the east, and when they went in the first section, it was called the holy place. And then there was a veil or a curtain, and behind it was the holy of holies, or the most holy place. 
And the background of this is, is Exodus chapter 26. Well, what can we say about that tabernacle or that sanctuary? Number one, it was earthly. Number two, it was temporary. It was never intended to be a permanent arrangement. And number three, it was limited only to certain individuals whom God handpicked to go into that sanctuary. So in order to appreciate the fact that we have a better sanctuary, you have to recognize that there was a previous sanctuary. Okay, Now, in the next section, verses 6 through 10, that, that Old Testament tabernacle and the services connected with it, they were a temporary arrangement that the Bible calls a figure, or the New King James calls symbolic. Let's look at a few things in this section. If you look at verse number 6, Now when these things were thus ordained or prepared, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, or first part of the tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second, that is the Holy of Holies, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Now, let's make this observation. A moment ago we said that only certain individuals were allowed to go into the tabernacle. And those individuals were identified as priests. Now, human wisdom might say, hey, Anybody wants to be a priest, we're going to have a training class for three months, and then you take a test, and if you pass, you're in. Human wisdom might say that. Or human wisdom might say, you know what would be a good idea? Instead of wearing out one tribe, what if every month or every year we rotated? We'll start with Reuben, he's the oldest, and let his let the tribe of Reuben be priest. Now, human wisdom might, might suggest that. But you know, the Bible says the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And so God's the one who set down the stipulations. He said, those who are going to be priests, number one, they have to be from the tribe of Levi. Now, maybe somebody under their breath might have said, no fair. But that's the way God said it is. Number two, in order to be a priest, you had to be of the male gender. And number three, you had to be a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Now, there's one exception to that. Aaron was not his own descendant, okay? So Aaron and his descendants, they were allowed to be priests. Now, according to verse 7, the high priest did something that no one else did. And the Bible says once, in other words, on one occasion per year. And the Bible identifies that day as the Day of Atonement. Luke chapter 16. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the goat and go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle that blood. And when you put the message of chapter 9 and verse 7 together with the message of Leviticus 16, you'll find that, for whom did he sprinkle that blood? He said, well, he sprinkled that blood for humans. Which humans? For himself. For his family. And for the nation. And that was called the Day of Atonement. It was on the seventh month, tenth day. And it came around every year. Even though there were daily sacrifices every other day of the year. Morning sacrifice, evening sacrifice made by the priest. Plus all the other sacrifices that were made at different times. But every year on an annual basis, the high priest would go in there 
for the atonement of the people. That was the earthly, temporary arrangement. Now, our high priest over the house of God, that's how he's described in chapter 10 and verse 21, he didn't go into an earthly sanctuary, did he? He didn't go in beyond the curtain. Rather, we're going to see as we get in about verse 23, 24, and 25. He rather went into heaven itself. Now, all of that arrangement under the Old Testament was a what? Look at verse 9. Which was a figure, New King James says, symbolic for the time then present. You know what that word is? Maybe your Bible has a footnote. But the Greek word from which we get symbolic or figure is a word that you're going to be able to pick it out. Parabole. Parabole. What's that? That's our word for parable. Which is a likeness or a comparison. All those things in the Old Testament were what we might call a shadow, right? We might call that because that's what the Bible calls it. Look in chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come. I believe the good things to come here is not talking about heaven, but it's talking about the arrangement we now have under the Messiah. But the Old Testament was good. The new arrangement is better. It's the real thing. And I said this earlier, that the old arrangement with the tabernacle and that earthly priesthood and the law, those were all temporary. Okay. Three things that that people need to understand about the old law. And if they could get these things, that would go a long way in helping them rightly divide God's Word. Number one, the law of Moses was an agreement between two parties, Jehovah and the nation of Israel. Number two, the law of Moses in that arrangement was temporary. And number three, we read in Acts 13, it was not possible to be justified by the law. Is it possible to be justified by the blood of Jesus? Yes, so which arrangement's better? The blood of Jesus arrangement, right? Now look at verse 9, and you'll see the temp- not verse 9, uh, verse 11. Let's go down and look at this next section. What are we going to call this, okay? Uh, Jesus' blood obtained our eternal redemption. When you look at verse 11, you see a couple of things I want you to notice. Number one, Jesus came as the high priest, okay? of good things to come. Go back to verse 10. That's where I really wanted to be. Go back to verse 10. Look look at that. Which stood only in meats or foods and drinks and divers, washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time. Now, wait a minute. That is stating that the law of Moses was not going to be a permanent arrangement. It was until something. You know what that sounds like? That sounds a little bit like Galatians 3 and verse 19 where Paul asked the question, Wherefore then serveth the law? What's the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come. Well, who is the seed? You go back up three verses, Galatians 3 and verse 16. The seed is the Christ. So here's the similarity in language. In Galatians 3 19, the law was until the seed came. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 10, that old arrangement was until the time of Reformation. Whatever that phrase means, it's talking about the time of the coming of the Messiah when He did what with the old law? Chapter 10 and verse 9, He took away the first that He might establish the what? The second. 
That was God's plan. That was God's plan. Okay? So, verse 11, he came to be a high priest of things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. So what Jesus came to do as high priest was not connected with the offering of animal sacrifices. It was not connected with service inside a man-constructed building. Verse 12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood, He entered in how many times? What's He got? Once. Into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Those high priests under the old covenant, they went in, well, just one day a year. But if they were high priests for 20 years, how many times did they go in the most holy place? On 20 different occasions, 20 different years, right? How many times did it take for Jesus to get the job done? Look over in chapter 10. We just read once. Look at chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest standing daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, bless Jesus, verse, verse 10, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. What, what picture comes to mind? Him sitting down on the right hand of God. Task completed. Right? He came to this earth offered his life, rose on the third day, stayed on the earth for 40 days, returned to heaven, sat down on the right hand of God. His blood did what a gazillion gallons of animal blood could never do, right? It's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. That's chapter 10 and verse number 4. Now, there's an interesting flow here in chapter 9. Using the word eternal. In chapter 9 and verse 12, he obtained what kind of redemption? Annual? Weekly? Monthly? No. What kind? Eternal redemption. He made that sacrifice, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit? Verse 15. And for this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressors that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of what? Eternal inheritance. Now, it's an interesting study in the book of Hebrews to latch on to that English word eternal and see what's connected with eternal. Well, right here in this, in this passage, in this section, verse 12, you've got eternal redemption. Verse 14, you've got eternal spirit. And verse 15, rather, you've got eternal inheritance. Does that sound like a good deal? Does that sound like something that ought to be of interest to human beings who are going to live somewhere forever and ever and ever? Sure does. We're not redeemed. Peter Peter makes this... In fact, I would say Peter basically answers a question. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Peter basically answers a question, by what are humans redeemed? And he says, well, we're not redeemed by gold and silver and material stuff, but rather we're redeemed by the blood of Christ, who as a lamb, without blemish and without spot, right? He poured out His blood. And so we sing, I have been redeemed, and the answer is, we're redeemed by what? By the blood of 
of the Lamb. This chapter does not mention Calvary. This chapter does not mention the cross. But when you read chapter 9 from beginning to end, you come away with a deeper sense of appreciation for the sacrifice that Jesus made. Remembering Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Chapter 6 of the book of John in verse 38. Now in the next section, here's a concept that, that we're pretty familiar with, and that is the necessary death of the testator. Well, a couple of thoughts. Maybe that's not worded the best. Number one, this chapter makes it clear the death of Jesus was necessary. But in terms of a testament coming into force, when's that going to happen? Well, let's see what the Bible says. Look in your Bible in chapter 9. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, the one who gives the testament. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Now, how does that apply to the one who's described in verse 15 as the mediator of the New Testament? How does that apply to the earthly activities and teaching of Jesus? If you've been engaged in private Bible study with a denominational person, or or maybe not even a sit-down study, but a discussion, Sooner or later, they're going to mention the fellow that I call the most famous thief in history. We don't even know his name. How can he be the most famous thief in history and people don't even know his name? Well, he's talked about all over the world. And usually the thought is, well, that fellow he, you know, didn't say he was baptized and he was saved. You have to look at the time element, right? When Jesus said to that thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Luke 23 and verse 43. At that point in time, Jesus, had he already died? No. Hadn't died, so what about his testament? Not yet what? Not yet in force. And so when Jesus made that promise, the old law still was in force. You know, when Jesus healed that paralytic, He said, look, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority and power to forgive sins, Mark 2 and verse 10. So when Jesus was on the earth, He could forgive sins according to His will. The testament came into force when? After His death. And so that's an important concept to remember as we're dealing with uh, denominational people who perhaps don't paying attention to whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, Old Law, New Law. It's a really important concept. And as you study the book of Hebrews, I think that something's going to be really helpful to your understanding and, and your being able to share that with others. Now, what about the Old Covenant? When that Old Covenant was given, was there blood used in the sealing of that covenant, so to speak? There certainly was. Drop down, though, and look at verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. Because Here's what God said. God said that blood was for the atonement of the soul. Well, I've seen the blood, right? That's Leviticus 17, verse 10. The next verse, 
God's message to Israel was that the blood is for the atonement of the soul. Now, here's a distinction. I didn't, I didn't mention a moment ago. I know we know, but I just want to remind us. One of the distinctions between what Jesus did and what the Old Testament high priest did is, when they went into the most holy place and offered that blood for atonement, for whom did they do that? He said, well, they did it for the people, but they also did it for whom? For themselves. When Jesus shed His blood, was He shedding His blood for Himself? Absolutely not. He said, well, the Bible says He became sin. He became a sin offering. That's what He became. He bore our sins. He, he, he didn't need to be reconciled to God, right? He had never violated God's will. So the perfect sacrifice was needed, and that's the sacrifice that our Lord made. Now, let's look at this last section before we close tonight. And that, well, I thought we would. There we go. The superiority of Jesus' sacrifice and heavenly service. I want to read it. Is that okay? You know, I, I think that reading the Bible in public is never a waste of time. And I hope we don't get so preoccupied with busyness that we get annoyed when God's Word is read. We were at a congregation Sunday and their Bible reading before Bible classes was Acts chapter 10. The whole thing. That's 48 verses. That's good stuff. Brother Gus Nichols, you say, hey, you, 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 you quote the Bible or read the Bible, you can't mess that up. <laughs> Let's read now, beginning in verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns or copies of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Talking about the, the blood of the animals. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the Old Testament priest went into the holy of holies. Jesus went into something that's holier than better than the holy of holies, right? He went into heaven itself. He said, preacher, where'd you dream that? I didn't dream it up. I read it right there in verse 24. He went into heaven itself to do what? Christians, are you listening to the rest of verse 24? Now to appear in the presence of God for us. I know that, that we're told in chapter 7 and verse 25 that He always lives to make intercession for us. But it is as if Jesus took that blood sacrifice to heaven and God stamped it. That debt is paid in full. He didn't take literal blood into heaven, but He came to this earth, gave His life, rose from the dead, ascended to the Father, where He received dominion and power, sat down at the right hand, and He did that for us. Verse 25. Nor yet that He should offer Himself often as a high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must He often have suffered since the foundation of the world. In other words, how many times has Jesus had to make that same sacrifice over and over and over? He didn't, he didn't repeat it, did He? He did it one time. And the Bible says there in verse 26, But now once in the end of the world or age has He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Somebody says, huh, 
Have you looked around? It doesn't look like sin's been put away to me. It looks like sin's running rampant. Well, He didn't take sin out of the world, but He gave us an opportunity to have the guilt and punishment of sin taken away by His blood. As the old-time song says, What can wash away my sins? And, and the words come ringing back. What? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, when the blood of Jesus is applied to a person's sins, how many sins does the blood of Jesus take care of? 100%, right? We learned that back in chapter 8, that their, their, their iniquities God will remember no more. It's appointed men once to die after this a judgment. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for Him shall He appear the second time without sin and salvation. The first time He came and became a human. Came into this world. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1 and verse 14. And the instant He came into this world, He was headed toward the cross to give His life as a sin offering for our salvation. But when He comes again, He's not coming to become a human. He's not coming to go to Calvary. That was the first time. When He comes again, He's going to come in judgment. It's interesting, the language there in verse 28, it says He's going to appear the second time. Is there a sense in which Jesus has come already more than once? I think so. I'll tell you why I say that. We know He came in the flesh. We know that. You remember though on the night of His betrayal, He was with His apostles and He said, I'll not leave you comfortless or, or as orphans. He said, I'll come to you. I, I believe that was fulfilled when He came on the day of Pentecost. When, when He came through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And then it seems to me in the reading of Matthew 24, it talks about Him coming in the destruction of Jerusalem, that symbolic coming. But it's like those covenants. There was one covenant that was of such magnitude, it was called the first covenant. And another covenant of such magnitude, it's called the second. His first coming was called the first, and His final coming will be called the second. Now, look with me in your Bible, if you would, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as we close our lesson out. There's a place of safety, right? It's Jesus. He is, so to speak, our city or place of refuge. Did I say 2 Corinthians chapter 5? How about that? That's what I intended to say. That doesn't always happen. But if you look in chapter 5 and verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands. Where? Eternal in the heavens. Eternal inheritance in the heavens. Reminds us of that old song, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that over yonder stands a place prepared for me, a home, a house not made with hands. Jesus went to prepare a place for us. A place that is out of this world. Thanks be to God that through the offering and resurrection of Jesus, we have a living hope to an inheritance. It's what? Incorruptible, undefiled, fades not away, reserved in heaven for us.
If you were to ask me tonight, how much did Abraham and those other old timers understand about heaven? I don't know. But they had a concept. Because the Bible says in Hebrews 11 verse 10 that Abraham looked for a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. We're a blessed people. The God of heaven knows what humanity needs. He knows what's best for us. The God of heaven wants what's best for us. And we're thankful that in the Bible He's revealed what's best for us. When you and I study Hebrews chapter 9, we see the eternal redemption and the eternal inheritance that we can have through Jesus. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57, Thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And aren't we thankful? Maybe here tonight and you've never obeyed the gospel. The blood of Jesus has the same power tonight it had on the day that Jesus shed it for us. The power to wish away every sin you've ever committed. Here tonight as a child of the living God and you've sinned in such a way you brought reproach on the church and need to come home, we'll take whatever time we need to pray with you and pray for you. Uh, it just thrilled me to hear tonight of our new brother in the Lord. We had a a couple of men who obeyed the gospel yesterday, not in this area, but one of our elders had gone back home to North Carolina, one of his longtime friends. He's been communicating with them, using a correspondence course for several months, and gone over to visit him. And that man started teaching his friend, and both of them obeyed the gospel yesterday. And one of those men was concerned because he's always on oxygen. Always on oxygen. He said, how are you going to baptize me? He said, we'll work it out. Tonight, if you're here and you've never obeyed the gospel by being immersed into the Christ for remission of sins, there's a fountain free, and it's for you and me. If it's convenient, would you stand as we sing together?